We're going to be looking at the end of this chapter. And we're going to finish not only the chapter, but the third section of the, the book of Romans. And it's been an exciting journey. This gospel-focused letter can be outlined in eight parts. We said this when we started this book. There was Paul's introduction to the gospel of God's righteousness, wise writing. The apostle has already completed three of his missionary journeys and he wants to go beyond. He wants to go over to Spain and he's not met the Roman believers yet and he wants their support. So he's telling them he's going to explain to them the gospel that he's been proclaiming and hope that they'll partner with, with him. And then after that, he says the vast passage that you know. I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it's the power of God and the salvation. And he then goes from there to show why all people need the gospel that he preaches. There's the universal need, and, and that took a long time. It was a dark uh, time where we, we looked at Romans 1 and the pagan unbelievers and then moral people trying to climb up into heaven some other way, and then it ended with this universal condemnation that there's none righteous, no not, no not one. And where we've been ever since is the Paul's exclusive solution, which is the gospel of God's righteousness. He's been explaining that and detailing that in the Old Testament. What's coming next, then, is a believer's assurance. He's going to finish up verse 425 today. Then a believer's assurance, and then beyond that, there's the defense of the gospel, the, the transforming power of the gospel, the example of preaching the gospel, and then doxology for the gospel in chapter 16. We're going to be a while before we get there. But Paul brings us to the end of this major section, and what waits beyond, I think, is, is as exciting or, or maybe even more, because he begins describing the benefits of this gospel that he preaches. I mean, starting in chapter 5, which will we'll begin in just a few weeks, stretching all the way through Romans 8, Paul will provide this, the glorious assurances that we have because of, the, because of the gospel. I mean, in chapter 5, he's going to talk about how we have peace with God and, and eternal life in Jesus Christ, who is the last Adam. And then in chapter 6, he'll tell us that that we're, we're dead to sin and yet alive to God. Sin no longer has mastery over you. And, and he'll declare to us that we're free from the, from the law and its penalty in Romans chapter 7. And, and one day, Christ will even free us from this body of death, this hangover from the fall that we, that we fight against. And finally, in chapter 8, Romans 8, he'll describe the, the new life that we now possess with the uh, in the Holy Spirit. You know how Romans 8 starts. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this, this uplifting section then ends with the, with the immovable confidence that Paul has and that we have and that nothing can ever separate us from these blessed assurances or the love of God in, in Christ Jesus. And that's what's coming in a few weeks. But before he gets there, Paul has one final thing to to say to us at the end of Romans 4. And, and it's what many Christians say that they love. It's application. 
Maybe you've said that before. I've heard it at least a hundred times. Pastor, I really like application. I I want more of it. Give me practical application. And what they usually mean, what somebody usually means whenever they say that is they want something immediately helpful. They they want something that that they can put into practice today. the, the five things to do, to do what, what, whatever. And, and I usually respond that the same way. I like application too, but, but God gives us that in every single passage of the Bible. Our problem often is not that we need more application. Our problem is we need to apply what God's already given us, right? I mean, to say it another way, I mean, if God required us to apply the last sermon that we heard before he gave us a new one, how many sermons would we get? I mean, I'm afraid we often ask God for more bread when we have a half-eaten loaf in the, in the cupboard. And if that sits there too long, that can make for a stale and moldy faith. But, but thankfully, God knows our frames, and He gives us all things in abundance. And so today, He's going to apply this entire chapter in three verses. Paul wraps up chapter 4, and all of these passages about the Old Testament faith, about Abraham's faith, And he's going to show us how that pertains to us. And he's going to tie it in a nice, neat little uh, three-verse bow. I mean, you know, ever since we we began in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has been using Abraham and David as evidence for the gospel that that he's preaching. And and he showed us our need for salvation. An older New Testament saint in in chapter 1 and 2 and part of chapter 3. And then he described that glorious gospel at at the end of chapter 3 and ever since then. Paul's been shouting from the ancient Near Eastern housetops that salvation has always been Old or New Testament by grace alone through faith alone. In chapter 4, Paul says salvation is by faith, not by works, verses 3 through 8. He says it's by faith, not by ceremony, including circumcision in in verses 9 through 12. He says it's by faith and not the law in verses 13 through 17. And last week we saw that, that it, it's by faith and we even got an example of the nature of the kind of faith that, that he's talking about in verses 17 through, through 22. We need faith just like Abraham's faith. We have any hope of salvation today. We must be saved. We will be saved the very same way that David was, the very same way that Abraham was, the very same way that all Old Testament saints that were truly saved were saved. Calvin said, in every way, our faith is like Abraham's. He said, let us remember that the condition of us all is the same with that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promise of God. God promises immortality. We're surrounded with mortality and corruption. He promises, uh, declares that that he counts us just. We, We are covered with sins. He testifies that that he pro propitiates us and, and is kind to us, and yet we see outward judgments that threaten His wrath. What then is to be done? We must, be, we, we, we must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that, that nothing may hinder or pre- prevent us from believing that God is true, just like Abraham did. It's a good summary of the verses that we covered last week. I mean... Authentic faith is not based on external support or human perspective, which is often hopeless. It is based, authentic faith is based on the fact that God has spoken. 
And Paul now reminds us that when he did, this same God has spoken to you and me as well. Look look at verse 22 of Romans chapter 4. Verse 22. He says, Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness, not only for... uh, Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom... It will be credited as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from from the dead. Verse 22 is a conclusion about Abraham's faith. This authentic faith, it was credited to him as righteousness. And that was the faith that was described to us. Paul says it, Abraham's faith was credited or reckoned to him as righteousness. But that statement was not written for him only. I mean, Paul summarizes this entire chapter by by showing us that Genesis 15, 6, and by implication, the entire Old Testament, was written for us as Christians. People hearing the gospel today. I mean, what was implied since verse 1 of chapter 4 is now stated explicitly. I mean, Paul says while we are New Testament believers, the Old Testament has more relevancy than simply thickening the spine of your Bible. It has more to say than just the Proverbs and the, and the Psalms. Uh, it's our foundation. The Old Testament was written for us. I mean, you see, Christianity, you know this, but Christianity is not a new religion. It's a fulfillment of an old one. One that began with Abraham, that continued through, through Moses and was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Christ's death and resurrection was the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham and, and then to Israel. And the same promise that He makes to us today. And the words that God wrote when He promised that in the Old Testament, Paul says were written for us as well. We share the same basis of salvation with Old Testament saints, faith alone. We share the same object of of faith, the, the, the one true and living God of heaven. And we share the same promise of faith. This God raises the dead. That's what Paul says here in verses 23 through 25. And to round out this chapter, he reminds us that New Testament believers are blessed beyond any Old Testament saint's wildest dreams. I mean, we have a greater content to our faith because we have the promise fulfilled in the person and work of, uh, of Jesus Christ. I mean, what they looked forward to, we possess. Or to say it another way, Abraham had a promise, we have the gospel. I mean, he had the anticipation of what God would do, we have the news of what God has already accomplished. I mean, Paul shows us that by giving us three applications of the Old Testament message. I think that's the best way to outline verses 23 through 25. He's applying everything that he's been talking about. This Old Testament message is the same message that Paul is preaching, and that message is about justification. And he gives three applications of it. He says it's a statement that was written for us in verses 23 and the beginning of verse 24. He says it's a promise composed about us People that would believe in the future. And it's a fulfillment that's applied to us. And you have the very summary of, the, of all the gospel in one verse. Verse 25, he was delivered over because of our transgressions and he was raised because of our justification. It was written for us, it was composed about us, and it's applied 
to us. Three applications of the Old Testament message. Let's, let's look at the first one. The first application that Paul gives here is that the Old Testament message is, has a, as a statement was, was written to us. Look if you would at verse 22. He says, Therefore, it, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was, to, was credited to him, credited to him, but for our sake only, or our sake also. I mean, after quoting Genesis 15, 6, which is what verse 22 is, Paul says that specific statement was made to Abraham, but it was also written to you and I in the future. I mean, for the entire chapter, we have been told about Abraham's faith from the book of Genesis. I mean, going back to Genesis, we went back to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 and the circumcision. And we even talked about Isaac, the sacrificing of, of Isaac. I mean, the whole chapter is about Abraham and his faith and, and how he was saved by the same faith that Paul was preaching. That, that's Paul's point of even including all of that. And, and that we need the same kind of faith that Abraham has. But, but here Paul goes a step further. He actually says what was written to Abraham the very promise that he hung his faith on was written for us as well. I mean, if you think about that, that may, at first glance, that may cause you to ask, I mean, does Paul need a good hermeneutics lesson? I mean, I mean, does he know the difference between in the Old and New Testament? I mean, surely Paul understands that Genesis is way back there and, and, and came before Romans. So how can Paul make that statement? Well, he can make that statement because God's revelation is progressive but it's part of a consistent plan. I mean, it was surely given in time and history and context, but, but, but the Scripture is supernatural, and it foresees all of salvation history. That's why whenever you, you read the Bible, whether it's Old or New Testament, whether it was written by Moses or written by Paul, you see it speaks about the same God. It says the same thing about man. There was no difference in Abraham than us. He was a sinner just like you were. The same temptations that had taken him are common to you. And the entire Bible speaks about one method or one way of redemption. A way that God would accomplish by His grace and that God would offer to you by faith alone, believing that he would accomplish exactly what he said. And that is the consistent message of the, of the whole Bible. I mean, the statement was made to Abraham by God then. And Paul says that so that we would have the same promise to believe now. Because God for, could foresee us. I mean, in fact, the entire Old Testament was written for our benefit. I mean, the Bible tells that, the New Testament tells us that. In several passages, I mean, 1 Corinthians ten eleven, for example, repeats some of the failures of the, in the story of Exodus and then warns us not to fall into the same unbelief, the same way that the Israelites did. And it says, now these things happen to them as an example. Well, how do we even know what happened to them? Well, it was written in the Old Testament. And those things happened to them as, in the Old Testament as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We, we are now part of the, of the new covenant. We are now part of, of, the, of God's fulfillment, of His promise. What He promised then, He's fulfilling now. Paul will later say in Romans 15, 4, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, New Testament believers, so that through the 
uh, through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. What Scriptures is he talking about there? He's talking about the Old Testament. And the passage that you know well, you probably memorized in Sunday school if you've been a believer for any length of time, uh, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training or instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped in every good work. I mean, that primarily is a reference to the Old Testament. Of course, it includes the New Testament because the New Testament Scripture... But when Paul penned those words, the New Testament wasn't completed yet. He's primarily pointing to the Old Testament. All Scripture, whatever Abraham had up to to that point, and all Scripture for us, we have it all. The Bible says is an example. It's for our instruction, our reproof, correction, training. But not all Scripture was directly applied to us. I mean, the entire Bible is God's revelation. to to mankind. But there are certain passages that were written to specific people in a specific time. Take the the ceremonial aspects of the the Mosaic law. There was law before God received it from Moses, so God's law is eternal. That hasn't changed. But but the Mosaic covenant was given specifically to Israel living in the land and the the ceremonies that that are there. You know, those verses that people that want to to discard the Bible and, and not listen to the gospel bring up you know well doesn't the old testament say you can't eat shrimp or you you can't wear linen and in this and and so on and so forth well those verses were written to a specific people in a specific time but thou shalt not kill surely applies to all people of all times but paul says here that genesis 15 6 was written for you i mean you don't have to this is not written to just abraham or to the jewish people this is a verse This is a truth that was written to everyone, to you. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. That's for us. Now contemplate that for a minute. Contemplate the fact that the creator that you've been learning about on Sunday night, the God of all the universe, has written a book. (laughs) And contemplate that that book is about who he is and who you are. It's written in language that can be understood with specific grammar and context and time. It can be rightly divided. You you can understand. The Bible is clear. It's a book about heaven and hell. It's a book about life and death. It's a book about mercy and justice. It's a a book about good and evil. It's a a book about men and women, right and wrong, how to live a good life, how how to suffer a miserable one. And it's right in front of you. It's available to you, ready to be read. I mean, doesn't that make you curious about, uh, about what, what this God said? I mean, it should. I, mean, I can remember witnessing to a man one time and, and said to him, does it make any sense that you spend more time uh, uh, researching uh, what new car you're going to buy than, than where you'll spend eternity? I mean, you'll check out different dealerships and prices and options and you'll do that for hours upon hours, but that you won't spend one hour considering the gospel or reading the Bible which can save you? I mean, does that make any sense? That doesn't make any sense at all. But beyond God writing a book and writing that book to everyone, for everyone to be able to believe, God says right here He's written something to you, something that He he wants you to know very specifically was written to you 
And that something was that he would count you righteous before him if you'll believe in him. If you will come to him by faith, the same faith that Abraham had, he'll wash your sins away. And when he wrote that, he knew that there would be people who, who would take him up on that, on that very offer, which is the, the second application. Second application of the New Testament message is the, is the promise was composed about us, a future people with a, with a facsimile faith. You know, look, if you would, at, at the rest of verse 24. He says, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now, what does that mean? Well, he's talking about a future people who has the same kind of faith that Abraham had. I mean, Paul now defines a particular people that, that it was written for. I mean, it's those who would be justified in the future. People who would hear what God wrote to Abraham that was written for them and people who would believe that. It's just like the atonement of Christ. I mean, the Bible is sufficient for all people to believe, for all men to believe, but it's efficient only to those who do. I mean, the Bible's for everybody, but, but it only works for those who believe it, who put it into practice. I mean, just like the blood of Christ was, was, was sufficient for all the sin that was, that was shed, but, but Jesus obviously knew exactly who he was dying for. I mean, the blood was applied, is applied only to those who believe. So there's a general gospel call, and then there's a particular fulfillment in God's people. And God wrote to them, and God wrote about them. I mean, here's another statement that proves God fulfilled His promise to Abraham. It's right here. I mean, you remember God promised to make Abraham a father of many nations. He takes him outside. He says his offspring will, will be like the, the uncountable stars of the night sky. And he promised that Abraham's children will be reckoned righteous by faith, just like he was. And now, he says, knowing that, he wrote Genesis 15, 6 about those children. They're the ones who will believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. There's some confusion, if you read commentaries on this verse, about the future tense. I mean, it's, it's clearly future. They would say that this is proof that our justification is not a present reality, something that God will do for us even as, as New Testament saints in the, in, in the future. Catholicism promotes that error. I mean, we've talked about that many times before. Catholic dogma, you're not declared righteous the moment of faith based on Christ's finished work. It, you're infused with righteousness, and, and then you, you work to keep it, and then you, you grow that righteousness in the sacraments. And it's like progressive justification rather than God makes a declaration that you're right before Him, solely based on the work of Christ, not anything in you, not anything He puts in you, not anything you'll grow, based 100% upon the righteousness of Christ. It's alien righteousness that God credits or reckons to you even though you don't have it because you're unrighteous just like, just like I am. But in Catholicism, you need Jesus, but, the, but then you add your effort as well. And this verse couldn't be any plainer. It, it was written in the past for those who would be counted righteous in, in the future. I mean, look at it again. It says, therefore, it was also reckoned to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. Verse 23, now, not for his sake only was it written, that's Abraham's, 
that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited. And the point here is future believers. Not a believer's future justification. It's about future believers. I mean, and if you miss that, he follows up with a clear statement that these are New Testament saints. As those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead? Mentioning Christ's resurrection. I mean, the justification of New Testament believers was future to Old Testament Abraham. When Genesis 15, 6 was written, New Testament saints hadn't been born yet. Schreiner said that you could paraphrase it this way. Genesis 15, 6 was written for the sake of those who in the future would be counted righteous by faith. And both Abraham and these future saints have the exact same object of their faith. There's a future people that this verse anticipates. But those people will have the same faith. It's the same Xerox outline... We just get to color it in with more detail because we have more detail. Look at verse 24, the end of it. It says, To whom it will be credited as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. I mean, in Him, that's the first part. Our faith is in Him. And who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. That's the second part. That's what, that's what He will do. So you have to define who's He. And we know what the second part means. I mean, Paul says, just as Abraham believed in God who raises the dead, Christians also believe in God who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, which is a profound statement. Now, notice that Paul says, your faith as a New Testament saint is in Him. That's in God. I mean, he doesn't focus here on, on, on Christ being the object of our faith, which of course he is because he calls him our Lord in the very same verse. I mean, so this is not, is not meant to take anything away from Christ, but, but Paul's point is to connect the covenants. Connect the, the covenants to the same God. He, this same God, this same God of Abraham, is, is your same God, and he's the object of your faith. I mean, Paul does that in other places, like Titus 3.8, where he mentions God. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in, in good deeds. Most of the time in the New Testament, Paul points out that Jesus is the particular object of our faith. And Jesus, who He is and, and what He did, which is what He'll do in the very next verse. But right here, He's, he's building of course, they're both members of the Godhead, so there's no theological issue between saying believing in God and believing in Jesus because they're both God. So what's Paul doing? Paul is connecting the faith of Abraham with your faith. The verse, the promise that was given to Abraham, that promise was written for you. And it was, it was given by, by the God of Abraham, who is also your God, the same God that you believed in. And this God is the God who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. It's progressive. Abraham's faith was, was in God who declared him righteous, and your faith is in God who also declares you righteous. Abraham's faith was in God who said he would bring about the promise. Your faith is in God who has brought about the promise, who is Jesus our Lord. And that promise is the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
even more specifically for us, it's in the one who was delivered for our transgressions and raised for our justification. He'll go one step further in the next verse. I mean, Paul's point here is the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Old Testament promises that are fulfilled in the New Testament. And yet there's the same God who's reigning over both. We believe in the same God as Abraham. Old Testament saints are justified by faith, and New Testament saints are justified by faith. And and we have the same God as the object of our faith. It's what theologians call continuity and discontinuity. We're we're saved the same way by grace. We have the same God. We have the, the, the the same nature of faith. But there are different time periods. And as God is unfolding His plan of of redemption, and that that shouldn't surprise you. And neither should the emphasis on the resurrection, but it might. Look at verse 26, or 24b. Who believed in Him, there's the first part, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. I mean, Paul says with that verse, both Old and New Testament saints believe in a resurrecting God. You say, I I don't see the resurrection a lot in the Old Testament. Well, it's surely not as much as in the New, but it's there. In fact, Hebrews 11 tells us that that's what Abraham believed whenever he took Isaac up on the mountain. He believed that if he actually went through with what God commanded him to do to Isaac, that God had the power and would actually raise Isaac from the dead. That's how strongly he believed that in God's promise that from Isaac there would become a people in many nations. Old Testament saints believed in the the one true God, and this God had made a promise of future salvation, and New Testament saints believe in that same one true and living God who has fulfilled that promise in the personal resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's the shadow. His figure is cast over all all of the New Testament. He, he's, the, he's the horizon point of the promise that, that, that God made to Abraham. But in both cases, your faith and their faith was in the same God, a resurrecting God, who would, who would justify those who believe in Him. Now, Paul doesn't mean that Abraham believed in the man, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus hadn't come yet. He believed that there would be a man who would come. But what Abraham did know was who God was and that he had the power to raise the dead and one day he would. And Paul's saying, I'm writing to you, proclaiming to you that this day has now come in the book of Romans. This is what Paul talked about whenever he introduced the letter. Remember our our three parts? Paul's introduction to the letter. You can turn back there or read it on the screen. Paul is writing. Here's how he starts this entire letter. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. What about this gospel, Paul? Which he promised beforehand. That's God. Where did he promise them? How did he promise them? Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What Holy Scriptures? The Old Testament. Concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God, with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. He says in the introduction of his letter, the resurrection of Jesus is what revealed or signaled the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. 
And that meant a new, a new age had dawned. I mean, when Abraham believed in God, the promise was unfulfilled, and, and the new age had not yet come, but, but he believed in the God who promised that it would, and that this God had the, had the power to raise the dead. I mean, you believe in the same God who has raised Jesus our Lord from the dead and the same one who makes the promise that you will rise from the dead one day because of that. That's, that's how we have the same faith of Abraham. The same God looking toward a resurrection, the resurrection of, of Jesus, and in our case, looking back to the resurrection of Jesus and forward to ours. I mean, Paul describes a Christian here in two ways. They are the promised people of Abraham. Christians are the promised people of Abraham. So, so don't disconnect your, you know, your, your New Testament or your New Covenant uh, engine from the, from the Old Testament. They are those to whom it was going to be reckoned when we believe the same promise. And, second, Christians are those who have received the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. Christians are those who believe in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. The fulfillment is there. Let me press this home a little bit. Do you realize what this says? This says that we are more blessed than any Old Testament saint, which is what Hebrews 11 talks about. And it also says, without the belief, without a belief in the resurrection, you cannot be saved. That's what it says. I mean, what must you believe in order to be justified by God and go to heaven? Just believe about God? Believe in God? Well, last week we saw what authentic faith actually looks like. You're fully persuaded that what God promised He's able to deliver. And here, Paul says that it must contain a faith in God and the resurrection. That's what he, he promised to deliver. I mean, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a literal historical event. And, and as a Christian, you believe that. I mean, even skeptics acknowledge that there was a man named Jesus who lived around 33 AD, and his followers believed that he rose from the dead. They don't believe that he actually did, but, but they, they will acknowledge that, that there was a man named Jesus crucified on a cross and that his followers believed that after he was buried, he, he rose. That's not just a, a, a Bible fact, it's a historical one. But Paul says a Christian actually believes that. Do you believe that? I mean, from a spiritual standpoint, the resurrection of Christ is both victory and vindication. It, it's victory because it proves that the cross was not in vain and, the, and death had no power over Christ and so death has no power over you. And, it, and it's vindication because through the raising of Jesus, God declares He was exactly who He said He was. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it's central to your faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. I mean, in that verse, Paul ties the resurrection to the entire message of the gospel. And the outcome of, of your faith. I mean, both are vain and empty without use. If the resurrection didn't take place and you don't believe in it, But that idea is what unbelievers would say is foolish. I mean, you mean to tell me I have to believe that a man died and then God raised him from the dead in order to be forgiven? Yes, you do. 
And that's exactly what Christians believe. And Paul not only says that, you, you must believe that it was God who was the one who promised to do that thousands of years beforehand, so many would believe. And then he declares that in the Bible. And for Christians, that's not hard to believe at all. It's something that is very natural to us. It's one of the ways that you know that you've passed from death into life. You're, you no longer have a natural mind. You believe exactly what God says. Look, look, look at the next verse, because here is, is where God actually does declare that in the Bible, one of many places. Here's the third application. Third application of the, the Old Testament message is its fulfillment was applied to us delivered for our forgiveness, and he was raised for our justification. Look, if you would, at verse 25. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. I mean, our faith has the same nature, just like we saw in Abraham's. Our faith has the same object, it's God who promises, and this God who raises the dead. But now we move beyond the, the content of our faith. We, we move to God's fulfillment. The fulfillment of the Old Testament is applied to us as New Testament saints, New Testament believers. And that fulfillment was substitutionary, and it was justifying. It, it was forgiving, and it was confirming. It washed away your sins... And it gave you a ground of assurance that, that, that you're secure in exactly what, what God promised. There's nothing that can take it away. And that happened through His cross and through His resurrection. That's what Paul says in verse, verse 25 here. I mean, here's a summary of the gospel in one verse. He was delivered and, and, and He was raised. And He was delivered because of your transgressions. And He was raised because of our justification, or in light of, of our justification. It's probably a better way of saying that. The, the phrase he was delivered over and was raised is, is in the passive voice. It's what, what's, what's called a divine passive, meaning it's, it's God who's, who's doing this. God is the one who is delivering him. God is the one who's raising him. It means God himself is the one who delivered Jesus for our sakes. God is the one who made the promise to Abraham. God is the one who reckoned Abraham righteous by faith based on the, the future fulfillment. And God is the one who fulfilled it. And he fulfilled it through delivering Jesus over for your transgressions. He did that on the cross. And God is also the one who raised him up, confirming and securing your justification. And just so you, you, you might not be able to see it here, but just so you know that there's a connection to the Old Testament in verse 25, the words, He who was delivered up because of our transgressions is a reference to Isaiah 53. I mean, just like God is the one who handed over Jesus to death, the suffering servant was handed over to death because of transgression there, there as well. It's just another way of saying that the, the promise that that God made to Abraham have become a reality 
in Jesus Christ. I mean, it's one thing to tell people about what you believe will happen. I really believe this is going to happen, whatever it is. That's completely and wholly different from telling people about what has happened. It's the difference between something that has a future potential and something that's actually news, which is why the gospel is called good news. And God is one who accurately reports it, um, unlike most of what you see on TV today. Colin Cruz said, The ultimate expression of God's love for humanity, old or new, stands at the very heart of the gospel. The incredible fact that Jesus our Lord was handed over for our sins. That's the ultimate expression of God's love. That's what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Where did He give Him? What did He give Him for? He gave Him over to death on a cross for your transgressions. Paul fills the rest of it in here. I mean, in Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven. He was given over to the cross by God so you could be cleansed. And you you see, the fundamental difference between the the New Testament and the Old is not God, it's not faith, it's not grace, it's not even uh, the idea of a substitutionary sacrifice. The difference is the present person of Jesus Christ actually has been delivered and actually has rose from the dead or risen from the dead. I mean, what Paul received, he passed on, which is of first importance, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. And the fundamental difference between the old and the new is that is this God who saves by faith alone and grace alone now has made good on that promise. And he accomplished it through the person of Jesus Christ. And he was delivered over for, for our sins. Do you have sins? I have sins. I have sins that you don't know about. I have sins that God knows about. I have sins that I know about. I have sins that God knows about that I don't even know about. Sins of presumption. Sins that I've committed and that you've committed that you'll find out about on the day of judgment if you're not in Christ. And all of those sins, Jesus Christ absorbed on the cross when he was delivered. That's why the New Testament gospel centers uh, centers on the preaching of Christ. I mean, the apostles proclaimed in the book of Acts that he, that is Jesus, is both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. He's crucified, Lord. He's crucified Christ. And that's not just Jewish people. It's for us. It's not that Jewish people didn't believe in God. It's it's not that they didn't have a witness of the promise or or salvation by faith or salvation by grace. It's that the promise day had not dawned. And and now that it has, God is doing the work that He pledged to do by, by taking away our sins on the cross through His Son's work. And that's why any gospel preaching that lacks Jesus Christ is insufficient. It's like a cup without water. It's a gun without bullets. It's... It's a bank without cash. It's the message of the New Testament is Christ crucified. And he had to be to take away your sins. And because he was, your sins are gone. As far as east is from the west. 
And this Christ was also raised. It's the second part. Look at verse 25. He was delivered over because of our transgressions. Who sent Jesus to the cross? Well, was it Pilate? Was it the Jews? Was it your sin? I mean, ultimately, it was God who handed him over to the cross, and he was handed over by God because of our transgressions so that God could remove him, and he was raised because of our justification. I mean, beyond the, the reference to the cross, there's a, there's a bridge here to the resurrection in the Old Testament as well. I mean, you, you can't separate the, the death without the, the, without the resurrection. And so he was handed over to death because of, because of sin acting as a substitute, and he was raised for the sake of our justification. I mean, Jesus was handed over to death because we trespassed, and, and he was raised from the dead to confirm that our justification has been secured. And that's the idea. I mean, it, the phrase is the same. There's a parallel here. He was delivered over because of our transgressions. And he was raised because of our justification. Now, either that means exactly the same thing. The because there, he was delivered because of, of transgressions and he was raised because of, of justification. Or that second phrase is building on the first, which I think it is. I mean, Christ's death secures the ground for God to declare us justified even though that we have no reason in ourselves and Christ's resurrection then assures us of that vindication, assures us that that's taken, assures us of justification. Or to say it another way, Abraham had a promise and we have the gospel. We had the anticipation of what God would do and, or he had the anticipation of what God would do and we have the news of what God has done. I mean, this is the only place in Paul's letter where he connects the resurrection to justification. I mean, it's usually all about Christ's substitutionary death. But here he says the resurrection of Christ confirms our justification. It acts as the assurance that God has accepted us. That God has accepted what Jesus did whenever he died on the cross. Tom Schreiner said, to say that Jesus was raised because of our justification is to say that his resurrection authenticates and confirms that our justification has been secured. The resurrection of Christ constitutes evidence that his work on our behalf has been completed. And not only is it a confirmation that we were justified before God, it, it also ensures that we remain that way. Because what happens after Christ's resurrection? Well, the resurrection of, after the resurrection of Christ, He also ascends to the right hand of the Father. And He remains there as the resurrected Christ with the marks of the slaughter still, still upon Him. And there He conducts His intercessory work. That's what Paul will detail in Romans 8, 34 and beyond. Who is, uh, who is the one who condemns? Who will bring charge against God's elect? And he says, no one. You can't. Because Christ died and because he raised, uh, rose and because he ascended and because he's there acting as our advocate. Je Christ Jesus died, also raised to life, and he's at the right hand of God interceding for you, which is what 1 John chapter 2 says. Believers don't jump into sin, but sometimes they fall into it. And whatever we do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He 
is God's satisfaction. He's our propitiation. And the resurrection ensures Christ's intercession. And these things are combined, are a combined blessing for, for those who believe. I mean, the resurrection is proof that your sins were forgiven, that Christ's substitutionary payment on the cross was accepted, and that you're secure in him, and that he reigns in heaven until he calls you to his side by your own resurrection. And think about it. I mean, when Jesus came, his message was he was coming to die for our sins. That was the message that he proclaimed. That the, he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise. He was the suffering servant. And that's the message that the disciples were slow to grasp. But he kept preaching it all the way up to the cross, all the way up to the moment that he died. But how do we know that he accomplished his work? I mean, how do we know that God accepted his offering? How do we know that Jesus wasn't some crazy guy running around saying he was the Messiah? How do we know that the atonement was fully made? How do we know that we're truly justified before God now because of it? Paul says the proof of that is the resurrection. James Montgomery Boyce said, for three days the question remained unanswered. You ever think about that? I mean, we read about the disciples. They're wringing their hands. I mean, devastated. They're scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Peter denies the Lord. And for three days, that question remains unanswered. Will it be the way that he said it would be? Will he rise? The body of Jesus lay in a cold Judean tomb. But then the hour came, the, the breath of God swept through the sepulcher and Jesus rose to appear to his followers and later, as, as he ascended to the right hand of the Father, by this means God declared to the entire universe, I have accepted the atonement that Jesus made. R.A. Torrey said it this way, when Jesus died... He died as my representative. I died in him. And when he arose, he rose as my representative. I arose in him. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The resurrection is the proclamation of the fact that God is fully and completely satisfied in the work that his son did accomplish upon the cross. And so now bring, uh, Paul brings us to the end of his first major section, his first three combined together in Paul's first major section. And he brings that section to a close with this gospel truth. He started with the reason that he was writing. He wants to explain the, the gospel that he's preaching. So he takes us down into the dungeon and, and he takes us to those three cells and blow by blow he explains and reveals our lost condition. And then he brings us up into the, into the marvelous light and describes this gospel in great detail. And it's a gospel of grace. It's a gospel through faith and where God declares us just in his sight. And, and then he says that's not a new gospel. It was foretold in the Old Testament. Abraham and David are proof and he even shows what that kind of faith, the kind of faith they have, what that looks like. But now at the end, he returns to his eager theme. He says, all of this was written for you, this gospel, and it was written so that you may believe. I mean, Paul's application 
brings us to the point of decision. There is no way to be saved and not believe that Jesus was crucified, rather raised, on the third day. So do you? You believe that? I do. I believe that with all of my heart as I'm standing here today. If life would leave from my body, I believe that. And I will believe that whenever I'm rising into glory and I look upon my Savior face to face. I believe that He's washed away all of my sins because of Jesus Christ on the cross, and I believe that God rose Him from the dead. Do you believe in God, the God of the Bible? Do you believe that He has power to raise the dead? Do you believe that that's what He did in the person of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that, that He did that to accept Jesus' work? That He was delivered for your sins? Not Abraham's, but yours. And that He was raised to confirm that if you believe in Him, you too can be forgiven? Are you fully persuaded that what God promised He's able to do and that He did? If you believe that, then the rest of this book is written to you. Chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 is blessed assurance. All about the blessings that come from being in Christ and sanctification and His gracious work of the Spirit awaits you. But if you don't, then what's coming will only teach you what you're missing and not coming to Christ and I'll pray that even as you listen to that, you'll want those benefits and believe. And Christian Abraham didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith. Remember, he gave glory to God. That should be your goal as well. You need strengthen? Maybe wavering? Look to the fulfillment of these promises. God will fulfill whatever promise he's given to you as well, just like he did to Abraham. And just like he did to us, or for us. Let's pray. Father, a complete book. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. All with continuity. All given by the same God who fulfills his promises. And all of those promises have been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All that, even this very morning, I may stand here today and say, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That we might believe that Jesus was delivered over for our transgressions and that he was raised for our justification. Thank you for that great work. Father, may you strengthen us as we read your word and as we begin to embark on all of these promises that you have given us in Christ, these assurances. But I pray as we end chapter 4, if there's anyone who has yet to believe, today would be the day that they would bow the knee to you and trust fully that Jesus can wash away their sins and will if they'll come to him. And I ask it all in his name. Amen.